Greetings, church. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Please open your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our series in this great book. Um, And before we do, before we dive into the text, there is a lot that we have been going through. Um, And so we've been praying for you as elders and as leaders. We've been praying for God's great provision and care for our church. We're thankful for um, our country's leaders, our state's leaders, our civil leaders, and medical professionals who have all worked overtime the past number of weeks to think through the best way to care for um, each of these different places that they have different authority over. And we've been trying to do our same as, as elders of the church. We've spent a number of hours on the phone and planning and thinking and praying and asking for God's, uh, again, wisdom in this. And so let's continue to be prayerful for God's sovereignty through this, that the gathering is so important to us as followers of Jesus, so important for us that we do not give up meeting together. And yet also so important that we submit to the authority around us and the consideration that many medical professionals and experts have helped us think through individually as families, as a church community. Um, And so I would encourage you to continue to look at the blog uh, on our church website and uh, through emails as we continue to help make sure that we're connected. We're in this together, serving one another. If there are financial needs, if there are food needs, any needs that come up, we want to take care of each other well during this time. Not only our own, certainly those who are part of our church family, but also our neighbors, our friends who are around us, making sure that we're caring for each other in this. And so paying attention to those things, the blog and email and different communications, that way we can uh, truly walk in a manner worthy of the calling, even through something like this. And And I know for myself, just a good encouragement to pray for those who are affected in much more extraordinary ways than you and I simply not being able to gather um, at school at Monroe Elementary this weekend and uh, the following week. So let's be prayerful. And, And so before we open Lamentations 3, let's do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that what surprises us doesn't surprise you. We thank you that you are peace. And we thank you that in relationship with you, we receive a peace that goes beyond comprehension. And so we ask, Father, would you graciously grant peace those who have lost loved ones, those who are fearful, those who are overwhelmed, those who are distressed, those in positions of influence and authority, making decisions, doing their very best to care for many other people um, all over the world. And so we ask for your sovereign hand to will and to work your good pleasure. Would you bring peace? Would you bring care uh, to, our, to, to your world? This, this is your world. This is your creation. And so we ask for your help and wake us up. Help us to understand as a church what you're teaching us in this, what you're revealing to us individually, corporately. Um, And we ask that you would uh, graciously lead us, even as a church, uh, to what it means to be good neighbors, what it is to be good news to our friends, our neighbors, our colleagues, our coworkers, our families during this time. So, Father, we say, here we are, use us for your glory. And as we come to your text today, Lamentations 3, we ask that you would open our eyes, give us sensitivity to your spirit as we gather with our families or perhaps individually we walk through the liturgy this week uh, or with our groups, Father. We pray that you would speak to us, minister to us, help us to know uh, what it is that you're saying to us, and may we lament well, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. In God's providence, our text today takes us to a timely consideration, hope. 
Unlike some Christian thoughts, hope is not an idea bound by the halls of spiritual formation. The 2008 Obama presidential campaign drew the attention of masses grounded in the power of hope. Even American literature has found a timeless voice by employing the concepts of hope. Emily Dickinson once wrote, Hope is the thing that feathers, that perches in the soul, and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. Others have called us to a deeper purity, if you will, about hope, which is unfettered by any outcome. Hope is not the conviction that something will turn out well, one author writes, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. Hope is a part of the fabric of our cultural view of the world, inside and outside of the church. Psychologists through the years have attempted to make sense of our affection for hope through what they have simply called hope theory. One article explained, according to their theory, hope consists of agency and pathways. The person who has hope has the will and determination that goals will be achieved and a set of different strategies at their disposal to reach their goals. Put simply, hope involves the will to get there and different ways to get there. Perhaps not surprisingly, scripture takes us to a different conclusion with respect to hope. The psalmist summarizes the Christian's view of hope well in Psalm 135 through 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. You see, hope is not a matter of wills and visions of the future in the Bible. Hope is a person. Our souls wait for the Lord. We hope in the Lord because his word is sure and his power, he has the power to redeem. Of course, the fullness of Christian hope takes on flesh in the New Testament. Most specifically, this is Jesus Christ. Jesus is our hope. One of the great delights and yet weights of following Jesus is this idea of hope. As we are all too familiar today, right now, circumstances change and shift and deteriorate and can be fleeting. It's like what we feel with the news about COVID-19, the coronavirus, that every few minutes something changes. Therefore, we are always called to look beneath and beyond the surface of our situation to fight for a righteous disposition of hope. And it's not easy. This is not easy. You see, our hope is sure, but just because our hope is sure doesn't mean we always feel sure about our hope. This is what the speaker in Lamentations deals with in chapter three. And I'm convinced that his words and experience will be of great help to us today. Chapter three in Lamentations is the third poem. Remember, Lamentations is just that. Five chapters, five poems, one poem contained in each chapter. Thematically, they're connected, written within the sixth century, or rather the, the early sixth century BC, about 587 BC. There are direct responses and reflections upon the fall of Jerusalem. You see, after centuries of disobedience and disregard, God has exacted his righteous judgment upon his people. 
Poem one was written like a report of what had taken place. The poet is emotionally distant and essentially just gives an account of Jerusalem's guilt, a city he personifies as a weeping widow. Poem two shifts in tone, away from a distant reporter to that of an invested and even contesting ally of the city, crying out to God on behalf of the city and implores the city to pray and to be honest with God, crying out to him. Along with the first and the second, the third poem follows an acrostic form. Each line employs a successive Hebrew letter. The difference in that flow in poem three is that it is 66 lines, and every three lines take on a corresponding Hebrew letter. 22 letters, 22 sets of three lines. The tone and voice in poem three also shift. Look at verse one with me. Lamentations three, verse one. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. The poet is not a reporter. The poet is not an ally. The poet is now being directly afflicted and affected by the wrath of God. However, we can't be sure that the poet from chapters 1 and 2 is the man here in chapter 3. And the Hebrew word selected for man in this particular verse informs us beyond the superficial. This is better seen as a strong man in the strength of his years who has been commissioned to protect others. His voice and experiences are so distinct that it is most likely that this is now a third speaker in Lamentations. The poet first, then the city, a weeping uh, widow, and now this strong man. This is a particular effect upon us. We're listening to one person and his particular story. See, as we'll see, we're moving from a reporter to this advocate, to a communal lament in chapters one and two. Now we get a personal, firsthand account of what is going on in one person's life in this story in Jerusalem, that this, this city that sits in isolation and decay under the wrath of God. You see, when we hear the story of a nation or a large group of people, we may have compassion on their collective story. But we move on quickly, don't we? When we hear, though, a specific story about a specific person telling their experience, their story, it's like we zoom in. We zoom in and we are forced to identify with their pain and lament. From this simple introduction... The strong man communicates and aches through a grisly picture of his personal pain. Look at verses 2 through 9. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. The strong man is overwhelmed by an unidentified superior force. The poet poet says he, 
we can surmise, of course, from verse one and the language of wrath, which persists from the first two poems, that this cosmic punisher or this cosmic power, this superior force is actually the Lord. And God overwhelms the strong man. God has driven him away. God has brought him into darkness. He has turned his hand against him. God has made his flesh waste away. God has broken his bones, besieged him, enveloped him with bitterness and tribulation. He's made him live in the dark. He's, he's walled him in prison. He has put him in chains. He has refused his prayers. He has blocked his way. He has made his paths crooked. It's like an avalanche. It's like an attack. It's like a, a poetic collapse of humanity and dignity. The speaker is in a cage, shut out from hopefulness and locked away from remedy. And the violence only seems to increase as the divine aggressor is pictured now as a wild beast and warrior. Look at verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me into pieces. Tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. Verse 12. He bent his bow and set me as a target from his For his arrow, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. A bear, a lion, he has now a a bow and an arrow. And through all of, though all this language is metaphorical, it is an accurate communication of the experience that this man is going through. Scholar Kathleen O'Connor writes, the strong man's first person account of his affliction is not exact in any narrative sense, but is an accurate and effective depiction of horror. And the irony now comes into focus. This strong man who is meant to rescue and protect needs rescue and needs protection. In this prison, the strong man is not only afflicted by his attacker, but also by his own people. Look at verse 14. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope for the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. In in Hebrew, all peoples there in verse 14 is actually singular. Therefore, the better translation would be, "I, I have become the laughing stock of the people. Our speaker is taunted all day long by the people. So who who are these people? Who is the people? Who is this people who are doing this? This this singular group of people. Well, in context, it's best to read that this is the people of God. The people who are in it with him. In fact, the greater Old Testament context, the singular form of people is regularly a reference to God's people, Israel. But that begs a challenging question, doesn't it? If they're all in the same situation. Why would Jerusalem sort of pull back and look at this man and laugh at him? Why would they, who were going through the exact same consequence, the same shame, the same situation, be taunting one of our own? What's more perplexing than the question is that it remains unanswered. 
The aggravation just continues. He is filled with bitterness. He is forced. God has him to, to eat bitter herbs. God has made his teeth grind gravel. He has made him lay in ashes. All this action transforms the speaker's state and relationship with a soul level need. Like peace and happiness. Peace is gone. Happiness has been forgotten. Endurance has perished. Hope is lost. And all that has been lost turns into a personal cry and plea directly, we suspect, to the one who has brought on all of this calamity. It is a request to remember, but it is also an articulation of a submissive and humble posture, something we've sensed in the previous poems. See, despite all the rage and pain, there is an acknowledgement and acceptance, even affirmation of God's righteous anger. Seemingly out of nowhere, the main speaker of this particular passage begins to cling to the Lord. One writer says that the speaker weaves hope and despair together in shocking abruptness. It's a singular place now of unabashed hope in the entire book of Lamentations. Look at verse 22, the very beginning portion there. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This idea comes out of nowhere. The steadfast love of the Lord, it actually though, is if, if we think about it, has been the central theme or consciousness of every speaker in Lamentations. It has to be. You see, the steadfast love, this idea here, is the Hebrew word hesed. This is the covenant faithfulness and affection of God, which is uniquely given just to Israel. Not only so, but the name of the Lord, which the speaker uses right here, is Yahweh, the covenant name specifically of, of God specifically given to his people. And so because of the nature of his covenant love and his covenant name, the strong man from the depths of his weakness proclaims that God's faithfulness to his people never ceases. When we talk about the love of God, we are not simply talking about his emotions then what he feels towards us. We, we are speaking about his promises to us. We are speaking about his knowledge of us. We are speaking about his ownership of us. We are speaking about his faithfulness to us. So let's be clear, don't miss this. When the strong man here speaks about the unceasing affection of God, this is a reality he is looking to in order to be lifted out of the prison of darkness he has been sent to because of his sin. He needs more than emotion. He needs more than good vibes. He needs more than warm fuzzies. He needs more than all the feels. He needs what Sally Lloyd-Jones calls in her wonderful children's Bible, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what he needs. God's love is not a feeling. God's love is a sureness of our relationship with him. And his love is relational. It's unconditional. It's grounded in his character. It's generative. It produces more affection and love around us and in our relationships. And God's love is transformative. It makes us whole. It completes and restores and forgives and cleanses. This is why God himself 
is our hope. Hope is not a commodity he gives us. Hope is, is relationship with him. Because of the nature of God's love, beyond emotions, the strong man then could go on to say, look at the latter half of verse 22, his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness, O God. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, my soul, or says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. From the love of God flows his mercy and his faithfulness. The mercy of God is his loving willingness to not give up what by our sin, to not give us rather what by our sin we deserve. The faithfulness of God is his loving persistence to be in relationship with us beyond what is convenient or even beneficial to him. Therefore, the strong man in this, in this poem, the speaker, even in the darkness of sin is hopeful. That's incredible. Notice this hope comes not from a flimsy reassurance of self. The strongman doesn't discover some like depth within himself that causes him to be hopeful. But all of hope is grounded in the character and merit of God. God's love leads us to his mercy and faithfulness, but also his goodness. Look at 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is beautiful. Each line here begins with the Hebrew word good. That's designed to get our attention. When we say that God is good, we're, we're saying something about his moral intention and purity. The inception of, of his ideas and behavior and actions and character, it's all goodness. In fact, all goodness, anything we could describe as truly, a good, truly good comes from him and is a reflection of him. As one Egyptian church leader from the fourth century put it, for God is good, or rather, of all goodness, he is the fountainhead. God is not just good, but all good points us back to him. So in the darkness of captivity, the strong man seeks hope and rest from the torment in the very character of God. Where do you go? Where do you turn when you are overwhelmed by the darkness of sin, by the closing in of walls around you of consequence and pain and difficulty? Where do you go, my brother, my sister? Particularly, the strong man looks to the steadfast love of God, his covenant faithfulness, which leads him to the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, and the goodness of God. See, in the character of God, the speaker is searching for hope. The repetition of good not only brings up this centrally, but, but we also repeat things to ourselves when we're trying to convince ourselves and instruct ourselves, right? And the repetitive language seems to convey an imprisoned man then who is fighting to stay hopeful in the character of God, even as things are grim. And that's a word for us today, isn't it? We have to fight for hope, not to make hope, but to remember and surrender and hide ourselves in the hope that persists God himself, who is our hope. See, as Christians, our hope is sure, 
But just because our hope is sure does not mean we are always sure of our hope. That's what begins to show itself through the next portion of our passage. The speaker goes back and forth, recounting the consequences and devastations he has been through, but also the wonder and goodness of God. Let's look at verse 28 through 54. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the most high, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and have you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees my eyes cause, my eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies. Without cause, they flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. Let that sink in. Isn't this familiar to us? Is this not the experience of fighting for hope in the midst of grief and anguish and pain? If you know the depths of sorrow and of consequence, if you've stared the the face of the consequence of what you have done, if you know the costliness, then you know the anguish that this man is going through. And yet he says that there may be hope. As if he's searching for it and believing that it exists. But there's this incredible tension here. See, he searches and recounts the character of God. Notice what he says. He will not cast off forever. He will have compassion. He doesn't afflict from the heart. But in the middle of that, he admits, essentially, like, but we deserve this. We've, we've transgressed. We haven't been forgiven. God is wrapped in anger. There's separation. He's wrapped himself in a cloud. There's, prayers are not getting through. We're scum. We're garbage. And the effect leads to more tears and more anguish. Hear what he says at the end of this particular part. I am lost. See, hope is there but it's not yet fully trusted nor experienced. God is there, but, but there's this haziness and distrust. 
This is where the accusation from verse 14, in my mind, comes back into focus in this lament. Remember, he is assaulted even by his own people. He's the laughing stock of the people of God. Most commentators believe this disdain and dismissiveness from within his own community is because in the midst of such bleak and broken circumstances, someone in their company is foolish enough in their minds to still fight for hope. And so they mock him for wrestling to hope. Once again, another shift takes place in the speaker's lament. He's no longer just recounting what the Lord has done righteously in response to the strong man's sin and, and the people's sin. He's no longer describing the grief of sin and shame and the mocking voices of his mocking countrymen. From the lowest place in the poem, at the bottom of this dark pit, where his fight for hope seems to be swallowed up in those words, I am lost. It's here he cries out for rescue to the same God who has judged him. Verse 55. I called on your name, O Lord. From the depths of the pit, you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called you. You said, do not fear you have turned you have taken up my cause o lord you have redeemed my life you have seen the wrong done to me o lord judge my cause you have seen all their vengeance all their plots against me you have heard their taunts o lord all their plots against me the lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all day long behold they're sitting and they're rising. I'm the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give the, the dullness of you will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. Your your pursue, you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Notice the speaker describes in this present tone God's response to his cry. He calls upon the Lord and the Lord hears his plea. The Lord came near to him. The Lord took up his cause. The Lord redeemed his life. The Lord judged his enemies. The Lord has seen all the injustice that has happened to him. Over and over again, the speaker is resilient in using the covenant name of God, Yahweh, 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 your steadfast love. He's calling upon the God who is hope. And this is instructive to us because it's the nature of God's covenant that brings together all of these qualities, particularly these two qualities that at first blush seem contradictory to us, that God judges the strong man and God rescues the strong man. That God judges and that God rescues. Did you, did you notice that? Did you see? It is because of the Lord that the darkness of consequence has engulfed this man. It is because of the Lord that pain and hurt and lament have come. It's because of the Lord that this man laments. And yet, it is because of the Lord that he is redeemed. It is because of the Lord that he is assured and has comfort in the storm of this pit. It is because of the Lord that he has hope. 
These two ideas point us to Jesus because in Jesus, the judgment and the rescue of God come into perfect focus together. And the way he does this is laid out here in Lamentations 3. He draws near, Jesus does, to those underneath God's wrath because of their sin. And Jesus hears our cry and takes our place underneath the wrath of God on the cross. Therefore, the apostle Paul could write Romans 3 verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is just because he upholds the righteousness or rather the righteous will and word of God. Jesus is justifier because when we don't uphold the will and word of God, Jesus dies in our place and for our sins. Jesus is the son of God who is both judge and rescuer. He is our judge and he is our rescuer at one and the same time. That is why Jesus Christ alone does not just bring us hope like a thing, a commodity, a feeling, a vibe, a warm fuzzy. Jesus is our hope. And knowing Jesus means we can live with this hope because we live with him. Or to put it another way, we don't have to fear. Church, did you hear that? My brother, did you hear that? My sister, did you hear that? Look back at verse 57. You came near When I called on you, you said, do not fear. Church in the square, do not fear. This is the only place in the entire book of Lamentations where God speaks and he's quoted. He's not directly speaking in this moment. And his recorded words are the product of the gospel power of Jesus Christ, our true hope. See, we do not have to fear. Church, we do not have to fear. Do not fear because our God has come close. Our God has drawn near. He is a very present help in time of trouble. We do not have to fear sickness because Jesus is the good physician. We do not have to fear loneliness because Jesus is our comforter. We do not have to fear the darkness because Jesus is our light. We don't have to fear punishment because Jesus is our righteous judge. We don't have have to fear consequence because Jesus is our substitute. We don't even have to fear death because Jesus is our resurrection. We do not have to fear though the earth gives way. We do not have to fear though there is so much around us we don't understand. We do not have to fear though we have questions and we are surprised and we wonder what in the world is going to happen. We do not have to fear because Jesus is our hope. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, there is much in our world that causes us to fear. There's much shame and guilt and pain in our own story of how we have sinned against you as this speaker in Lamentations has revealed and shown. We identify with that. In our sin, we are in a dark pit. And yet the one who by your righteous will and consequence put us in that pit. 
you are also the one who has promised to rescue us from it through Jesus. So give us that hope, Father. May we live with that joy, especially now in a season in our world, in our country, in our city with many questions, with much fear. May we be a people of hope. We ask all of that because of the mighty and beautiful and wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody agreed and said, amen.